Welcome here, everybody. For those of you who are new here, uh, I'm Chris Dirksen. I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland, and uh, we're going to finally get back to our uh, series on the seven letters to the seven churches. Had a bit of a break the last two months. Uh, I was teaching the end time course, was part of it, and uh, Pastor Ray, we had those vision messages, and, and then, of course, it was Easter and Palm and all that sort of stuff, so we're, we're back to it. Some people were kidding me about this uh, earlier, but I, I went back online this week to see when the first message from this series was, and it was October 20th of last year, so this is officially the longest series I've ever preached, but there haven't been that many messages. It's just we've had Christmas and prayer and fasting and all these different uh, things. So anyway, I think it's probably good because you don't get bored of it. You get all these breaks, and then we uh, come back to it, but uh, we're in Revelation 3, verse 1 today. We're going to Take on the church at Sardis. We've got three uh, churches left, including today, Sardis and Philadelphia and uh, Laodicea. And as always, I just love these letters to the churches because they're so relevant to us today. Jesus speaks to the churches back then, and those those words that he has for them back then speak to us today. So let's pray, and then we'll begin uh, going through the letter to the church at Sardis. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word, first of all. We thank you for these letters to the churches which still speak to us today. We thank you for the many awesome things you're doing in our midst here. We thank you for School of Ministers, and we thank you for camp and, and all these different things, Jesus. It's, it's you. It's all you. We give you all the glory, and we are thankful. And uh, we're thankful that you saved us. We thank you that you forgave our sins. And we're thankful that we can still gather in freedom here in Canada to hear your word and to worship you. So I just pray out of that thankfulness, Jesus, I just pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, uh, take these words today from this letter and that you would powerfully draw us closer to you. In your name we pray, amen. And to the angel, Revelation 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, uh, right, and I've got the, the map up there, just a quick review, we've been working our way through the seven letters there, and uh, Sardis, number 5. Uh, inland, you know, the first three there, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, were uh, those cities were the uh, more powerful, more influential cities out of the seven. As we've been going now more into the interior of, of Asia, these churches in the interior of the province were not, I mean, they were still important cities, but they were not as big, they were not as influential, they were not as powerful as the other three. Um, a little bit of background, it's always good to have a bit of background, because when you know a little bit about the city, you know, and a little bit about what the church was going through in that city, it's easier to understand some of the things happening in the letter. So a little bit of background on the city of Sardis. Uh, The city of Sardis in the time when Revelation was written was kind of a has-been city, okay? Uh, You know, about 600 years before Revelation, if you go back to the 600s and 700s uh, B.C., uh, Sardis at one time had been one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world, okay? And the reason for that has to do with geography. Uh, Sardis was located in ancient times. There was uh, tons and tons of gold. It's right close to a mountain there. It's, uh, it's actually in a, in a low plain, which is good for farming, but there's a mountain right there. And out of that mountain, there was tons of gold and silver mined. And, uh, and archaeologists uh, last century, when they were digging up uh, Sardis, they were shocked at the amount of gold and silver they found in this city. They found it in all the graves. Pe- when people died, they had tons of gold and silver jewelry. Uh, Sardis, because they had, they had, it was just such a wealthy city in ancient, ancient times, okay? Um, they, Sardis is the place where, where uh, gold and silver coins, probably that's probably the first place where gold and silver coins were minted, uh, which is why some historians actually talk about Sardis as being the birthplace of modern 
uh, currency, okay? Now, again, by the time of Revelation, uh, that, you know, that wealth and prestige and power was, uh, was, it was, it was gone. It was still a very prosperous city. They were known as kind of being soft, uh, lazy people, um, but, uh, but it was not, it wasn't like it had been in the past. It was also in history known for being militarily, uh, there was this, this spur, this outcropping of rock that came out of the mountain about 1,500 feet uh, high above the surrounding plains. And on top of that, they built a, a huge fortress. And so in ancient times, Sardis was, was very strong militarily. In fact, many empires, many huge wars were fought back and forth through the plain around uh, Sardis there. And Sardis was only ever militarily conquered uh, twice because, because, it was, because they had this fortress up on top of this uh, 1,500 foot, this huge fortress up on top of this uh, 1,500 foot high outcropping of rocks. It was very difficult to take down. Now that's important because you're going to see something a little bit later in this, in, this, uh, in this message, in the letter. Jesus talks about being watchful or waking up. And the only two times that Sardis was ever conquered militarily was because literally it was like they were asleep at the wheel. Um, because they had such a good fortress, they were actually very difficult to defeat. But twice they were, they were defeated because they weren't watchful. And one time it was uh, the powerful uh, Persian emperor Cyrus the Great. Uh, he, had, he had surrounded uh, Sardis, and, uh, but they were in their fort and they were, they were good to go. And then one of their soldiers, and it, and it differs depending on where you read on why, but one of the soldiers from the Sardis fortress came out of the fortress and some say he dropped his helmet off the wall. I, didn't, I don't know, but, but something happened. Anyway, he was on this little kind of goat path on the mountain behind the fortress. The Persians saw him wandering around there, and a bunch of them followed him back up into the fortress, and nobody else was watching. They came into the fortress and attacked it, opened the gates, and, and that was it. So, and then another, it happened again about 300 years later. Uh, Sardis, again, a very powerful fortress here, but uh, Antiochus, one of the, the uh, Greek... Uh, emperors in that area, about 300 years after Persia, he, had, he had did the same thing. He sent a group of guys to climb up the cliff, up the wall, open the gate, and let them in. And again, Sardis was taken because they were not being uh, watchful. And that'll come up later in the letter. But anyway, that's, that's Sardis. It's one of the only churches out of the seven where persecution is not mentioned. So it doesn't seem like persecution was uh, a huge problem that the Christians at Sardis were dealing with, which is different from most of the other letters. Most of the ones we've looked at so far, there was intense persecutions in, the, in, in those cities. Sardis doesn't seem like it had it. And yet, Sardis gets one of the most stern rebukes. Of all the letters, this one's right up there with Laodicea as being one of Jesus' most stern rebukes to any of, any of the churches. There's very little positive in this letter, okay? And there's lots of parallels for us to learn here because, again, in many ways, Sardis uh, would have some parallels with us today. A prosperous, uh, easy-to-do city, not much persecution, if any, um, and, uh, and, but into that we have, find this, some spiritual problems. And so we'll just keep reading there. Let's get into verse 1 again. And, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now a couple of sevens there. These are things we talked about back in the beginning of this series. The seven spirits of God actually is talking about the Holy Spirit there. I don't want to get into that again. The seven stars are explained in chapter 1. The seven stars are the seven leaders of these churches. So Jesus holds the leaders of these seven churches in his hands. That was all explained in Revelation chapter 1. Now, before we go on, though, I do want to show you there's, a, there's some parallel imagery going on with the seven stars, okay? 
So Revelation chapter 1 clearly defines the seven stars. These are the seven leaders of the churches, okay? But there's also a bit of parallel uh, imagery that's going on here with the seven stars that all the Christians in Sardis would have gotten. And, uh, and because it had to do with what was on their money, all right? And at the time that Revelation was written, the emperor was the emperor Domitian, who was a very wicked man. He was a wicked emperor. And uh, like many of the other Roman emperors, he liked people to think of him as a god, Okay, and so he wanted people to worship him as God. And just a few years before Revelation was written, he had a son who died, okay? And because he thought of himself as a God, he wanted everybody to think of his son as a God too, as, a, as the son of a God, okay? Um, and so he had coins minted. This was on everybody's money, all right? He had coins minted with an image of his son sitting on the earth, okay, to signify ruling over the earth, and then to signify his divinity, he had seven stars surrounding this picture of his son. So this was on their money, okay? Now again, remember, Revelation 1 clearly defines the seven stars as being the leaders of the churches, okay? That's the primary meaning of the seven stars, okay? But there's no coincidence, there's no way that's coincidence that Jesus would use this imagery of seven stars right at the time when in, this, in the empire, you've got this emperor saying, I'm God and this is the son of God, and he's got the, his son there on these coins surrounded by seven stars, okay? And imagine if on our money, the prime minister, or the president, or someone was claiming to be God, then Jesus writes us a letter where he essentially scoffs at that and says, I'm the one who actually holds the seven stars, Okay? I'm actually the one in charge around here. And so that on a parallel, on a secondary level, on a secondary level, there's no way that's coincidence. And Jesus is scoffing at the Roman emperors and saying that he is the true son of God, all right? That he's the one who's, who's really in charge. And that would have been an encouragement, obviously, to the Christians. But let's keep reading. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. In other words, you look godly. All the other Christians look up to your church. You look godly. You're prosperous. You have good attendance. Probably had some nice buildings. I don't know. Okay? But the other churches, you have a reputation. The other churches knew about this church. Remember, in the other cities, the churches were very persecuted. Some of them were very small. Some of them were just barely hanging on by, by their fingernails. And Sardis wasn't like that. You have a reputation for being alive. The other Christians and the other churches look up to you. You have a reputation. You've got the nice building. You've got the nice programs. You've got people in the seats. It's all looking great. But I see, for real, I see you are dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And I want you to notice here that he's, he does not say, you know, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are actually just so-so. He doesn't say, you know, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're, you, you know, it's just too much. You're actually only this alive. You're only just mediocre. Somebody says. He says, you have a reputation for, be a lot, for being alive, but actually you're dead. Okay. That's a very serious rebuke. It's a very serious charge. I want to skip ahead a few verses. I want to show you how serious a charge Jesus is making here. Okay, he's not just saying, you're, you're, you, everybody thinks you're on fire for me, but really you're just kind of mediocre. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Okay, I want to skip ahead a few verses. I want to just show you something. I want to show you how serious this being dead is. Verse 5, Jesus says to them, and we're going to look at the rest of the verses in just a moment. 
But Jesus says in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Okay? Now, on the one hand, that's a great promise. So he's talking to this church, this church that has a reputation for being alive, but actually they're dead. Now he's speaking to some of them. He says, if you repent, those of you who overcome, those of you who conquer, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Now that's a great promise, but there's a flip side to that promise, isn't there? I mean, the clear implication, if language means anything, the clear implication of that verse is the ones, some of the ones who don't overcome, who don't conquer, who don't repent, will have their names blotted out of the book of life, right? That's the implication. The ones who conquer, I won't, okay? But the implication is, if language means anything, the ones who do not conquer will have their names blotted out of the book of life. That's serious. He said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And some of you, if you don't repent, you're actually dead, dead. You're actually separated from me. That's it. Your name comes out of the book of life. Now, I could show you, some of you are maybe new here, I could show you many other passages in Scripture why once saved, always saved uh, teaching is, is unbiblical. It's not good teaching. It's not, it's not proper doctrine. Um, but I don't want to spend a whole message on that, the, the once saved, always saved stuff. It's just this verse here. But before I go on, I know what some of you are thinking. And maybe you're new here or, or whatever, and you're going, oh, I mean, the moment we talk about people getting their names blotted out of the book of life, right away there's a fear response. Right away there's a fear response like, oh, Right? Some of you, that's what you feel right away. Maybe my name's getting blotted out of the book of life, right? Like if there's any possibility of someone getting their name blotted out of the book of life, maybe my name is blotted out, right? Maybe I've lost my salvation. And some of you maybe here right now, that that fear response is coming. What if I'm one of those who lost their their salvation, all right? And so I want to just sit here for a few minutes because we've got to know, first of all, what we're talking about here before we can move on, all right? So the first thing I want to just say to you is this. Nobody here at Selfland, not me, Pastor Ray, nobody on staff here, none of us believes, and Jesus isn't teaching here, that you can just lose your salvation, like, like a set of keys. Salvation is not like your car keys, like, oops, like my, my wife loses her car keys all the time, okay? And then she finds them a few days later. That is not salvation. Salvation is not something, you misplaced it, whoops, and I lost it. Salvation is not like your wallet. Someone stole it. Oh no, I lost my salvation. Salvation is not like the good feelings. Some days you have them, some days you don't. That's not salvation. Okay? So Jesus is not teaching here, and none of us here is the leaders here at Southern. We're not teaching that you can just lose your salvation, like whoops, and someone took it from you, or you lost it, or you misplaced it, or sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Not at all. Romans 8 is very, very clear. You read the last half of that chapter. Nothing can take you out of the Father's hand. No demons, not Satan himself, no tribulation, no trial. Nothing in all of this earth can steal you out of God's hand once you're in there. Okay? But that doesn't mean you can get out. That you can't just jump out yourself. Nothing can take you out of the Father's hand, but you can get out. He won't hold you there against your will. Nothing can take it. Nothing can take you out of his hand. You can't lose it. You can't misplace it. You can't just forget it. Nobody can steal you out, but you can walk away from it. You can walk in such a way of persistence, re- persistent rebellion against Jesus that there comes a point when he says, I have to blot your name out of the book of life. I want to read you a passage here that is encouraging because for some people that's like, oh, 
Like if there's any any possibility, that scares me. But I want to show you that this is not a, I mean, it's something we should fear God. We should have a proper respect for him. But it's not something that should make us anxious all the time. There's actually encouragement in this as well. 2 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 13. Starting in verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Notice the ifs in this passage, by the way. If we endure. Lots of people teach as if if you're a Christian, you you, you get to reign with Jesus. Just by being a Christian. And it's not true. If we endure to the end. If we conquer, if we overcome, if we serve him to the end. Then we reign with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. That is very important to understand, isn't it? If we deny him, he will also deny us. And he's not just talking there about a verbal denial. He's talking about there's, there's a place you can live in your life where you so persistently and consistently over time harden your life towards Jesus that eventually there's no relationship there. It's not that you've lost your salvation. You didn't just wake up one morning and where did it go? But you lived and you made choices over and over and over again to harden your heart toward him and live separate from him. And if you choose to deny him persistently in your life, he says he will also deny us. He, he won't hold you in his hand against your will. Nothing else can take you out of God's hand. No trial, no struggle, no demon can take you out of his hand. But if you want to get out, he will let you separate yourself from him. Of course, we don't end the passage there. And this is the encouragement. The encouragement, because some people think, well, maybe because I sin a lot, right? We all sin. We all make mistakes. Some of you go, well, maybe my sins, maybe I've denied Jesus by my sins. Maybe he's denied me. But that's not what this passage is saying. Look what it says the, next, the very next line. He says this, if we are faithless, oh, I love this, is encouragement. With the warning is the encouragement. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, you don't, lo- you don't lose your salvation by making mistakes. You don't lose your salvation by sinning. If you're faithless, he's still faithful, amen? Thank goodness our salvation isn't based on our ability to be faithful, amen? Because if our salvation was based on our own faithfulness, we'd all be messed up because we all mess up lots. And some of you here, you struggle with different bondages and and weaknesses and character. When people can go through that for long periods of time, even when you are faithless, he remains faithful. So you say, well, how do I know if I'm the deny him and he'll deny me or if I'm the faithless, but he's still faithful? How do I know which one applies to me so I can have assurance? Okay? And the thing you have to understand is, is so important. You can make a million mistakes and Jesus is so happy to forgive you. You can make a million mistakes, and he is still more than faithful, okay? But there's a difference between the mistakes made by those who deny him and then those who are faithless, and here's the difference. There's a, the, the mistakes that are okay, the faithless mistakes, are the mistakes that come out of the context of relationship with him. They're not the mistakes of I'm hardening my heart and I'm living out of relationship with him. They're the mistakes that just come from being human, and we are so human, and we are so fallible, we make many mistakes, but they're the mistakes of, I want to walk with him. I'm not doing it as good as I could. I wish I was, I wish I was more full of the Spirit and all that sort of stuff. But they're the mistakes that come out of, I want to have a relationship, rather than the, mis- the mistakes that come out of, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's sort of like this. And I, my wife isn't here this service, so I can be, talk about her even more, okay? I'm going to use her lots now in the next few minutes. 
You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't get up every morning and, because some of you are anxious about your salvation. You just have no confidence there. I don't get up every morning and wander around worrying, oh, am I still married today? I don't worry. Like, I don't walk around. I'm not worried here right now. Oh, I wonder if LaDawn still loves me. That would be very unhealthy, would it not be? And that's not what God wants from you in your relationship with him either. Now, does that mean I never make mistakes with LaDawn? Oh, I mean, I'm human just like you guys. We've been married 13 years. I think I've made one or two mistakes for sure already, okay? <laughs> I'm on pace for like three or four by the time we're 25 years. No, no. I'm like way more normal than that. I mean, I make lots of mistakes. And you have bad days and you have bad weeks and you have times when you're, when you're selfish or when you're stressed at work or whatever. And out of that, you say things you shouldn't. You don't love the way you should and you make mistakes. But out of those mistakes... I never question, I never worry, does she still love me? Is our marriage over because I just was selfish there today? I never worry about that. Why? Because the mistakes come in the context of a relationship that is good. We spend lots of time together. We talk together. We do stuff together. We hug each other, kiss, all that stuff. There's all this great marriage relationship knowing each other. And out in the context of that, though, I'm still human, and I make lots of mistakes. But the mistakes come out of the context of relationship. And in the context of relationships, it's faithless faithful. Does that make sense? Okay? But now, there's lots of marriages that do break up. Is that not true? And they start out being in love. I mean, they won't won't get married if they weren't in love at some point, right? Usually. So they started out loving each other, okay? But now down the road, they actually do break up and they make mistakes. But their mistakes are different because what happens in this marriage is over time, you know, marriages don't break up overnight. It's not like everything's awesome. Woo, we have an amazing marriage, amazing marriage. Lover, lover, lover. Boom, you wake up one morning, we're done. Never happens that way. What happens is over time, There's a hardening of hearts, both people, without repentance. They keep hardening, they keep hardening, they keep hardening. They don't have a context of relationship going on. More and more, they're separated. They're still in the same house, but emotionally, they're separate. And there's no repentance, and there's no coming back together. Now, they might still make some of the same mistakes I make with LaDon, but these mistakes are magnified a hundred times. Isn't that true? Because these mistakes are not being made in the context of a relationship. They're being made in the context of a hardening and ignoring and a being selfish. And over time, it comes to a place where you have two people in the same house and they're technically married, but there's absolutely no relationship. And that's what God is saying up here. He's not talking about you make a lot of mistakes, therefore you're done. That's not what he's talking about at all. You can have both sets make the same amount of mistakes, but if one comes out of the hardness and the separating and the ignoring and walking away, God says, I'll let you divorce me. I'll let you separate yourself from me. Does that make sense? I hope, hope that makes a bit of a sense. Because again, I, I hear people sometimes, they're so anxious. Am I saved? Am I saved? They're worried about their salvation. And what they want me to do is they want me to pat them on the back and tell them, once saved, always saved. You're okay. But that's not what you need to hear. What you need is assurance from Jesus himself. Is that not true? Let me just, I just want to take a couple minutes here. I want to tell you two principles, if you want, because God doesn't want you walking around in your relationship worried. He doesn't want you walking around always going, am I saved, am I saved, am I saved? He doesn't want you worried, if I died today, would I really be saved? Would my name really be in the book of life? He doesn't want you worried about that. So you say, well, how do I get that assurance, that confidence? In salvation, I'll give you, let me give you two principles, OK? 
okay? Two principles, assurance of salvation. Where does it come from? The first one you have to understand is so important. This is the basis of it all. Closeness breeds confidence, okay? Closeness breeds confidence, okay? Where do I get confidence in my relationship with LaDawn? Closeness. Where do I get confidence? You can, you can put 10 people in a room, 10 different couples. There's different levels of confidence in the marriages. Why in some marriages is there confidence? Why do me and LaDawn have confidence? I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, there's lots of traditions we have. Like every week, there's a couple evenings in the week where after the kids are in bed, we sit on the couch and we'll have some snacks together and we'll just sit snuggled up and we just talk for like an hour. And then we do lots of other things. We like to go for walks together. We like to play games together on our days off. There's all kinds of things we do, smiling to each other, little notes, little things helping each other out. The confidence comes out of these, this closeness. And the more I know her and the more I live with her and the years go on, the confidence is, it's not something you get overnight. I have way more confidence in our relationship now than I did 13 years ago when we got married. Because it happens over time. It's the fruit of something. It's the fruit of my closeness with her. Out of that, it's not an overnight thing. I either have it or I don't. It's a fruit of this relationship that we're walking out. And the more I know her and the more I walk with her, the fruit is I have this confidence in our relationship so that even when I make many mistakes, the mistakes cause me to go and say sorry, but they don't cause me to question the relationship. Okay? And it's the same with Jesus. The more you walk with him, it's not just people just want, they want someone to pat them on the back so that their worry is gone. They just want to get rid of the worry. This is not a quick fix issue. It's a relationship issue. If you, have, if you struggle with confidence, if you're sitting there today and you do have some anxiety and if you think about death, you're not 100% sure that you are, are, are going to be with Jesus and he's going to welcome you home in heaven. If that's your problem, you're, you don't need a quick fix. Relational problems require relational fixes. Closeness breeds confidence. Let me read you a passage of scripture here, amazing one. We talked about Romans 8 last week. Let me read you a, a passage here, Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That is one. We talked about the Holy Spirit last week. That is one of the Holy Spirit's jobs. It's to bear witness in your spirit so that you know in your spirit that you are a child of God, that he's actually your dad, that he's your father. That's part of the Holy Spirit's job, to bear witness in your spirit. Now, how many of us, I wonder here today, do not have that spirit-bearing witness? But if you have the Holy Spirit, he wants you to have that witness. He wants you to know that's his spirit inside of you. He wants you to know without a shadow of a doubt that you are a son or a daughter of God. He wants you to have that confidence, but notice it comes from him and not a pastor. See, a lot of people, they just want to run to a pastor or a book. Somebody tell me, once saved, always saved, so I feel good about myself, and they wonder, why do I still not have the peace that I need to have the peace? Let me, let me illustrate. I'm, I'm going to use LaDawn again, okay? Let's, let's go there again. Let's imagine, okay, confidence. Think about this, confidence in a relationship, and how do you get confidence in a relationship? Let's imagine that I decide to be an absolute idiot for a week, okay? 
and I'm just going to totally ignore Ladon, and I'm actually going to even go live with my buddies. I'm not going to talk to her for a whole week. I'm just going to be a jerk, okay? Now, um, is she going to divorce me? Well, actually, probably more likely she's going to kill me, but it's, it's, even that not, okay? <laughs> but even that notwithstanding, you know, she's more faithful than that. You know, one bad week, I, I just know her so well, her character and stuff. One bad week, she's not going to want to end the, the marriage over one bad week, okay? But she's also not going to send me any love letters, is she? I'm not going to get any love letters. I'm not going to get a peck on the cheek. She's not going to come over to my buddy's house and give me a peck on the cheek before I go to bed and then go back. Okay? You say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, let's, let's imagine. I, I take this week out, okay? And at the end of the week, I start to worry about the state of my marriage and does Ladon love me anymore? And I'm starting to really worry because I'm not confident anymore in my marriage. But instead of going back to Ladon and repenting and humbling myself and, and working to begin to rebuild the trust and the intimacy, imagine that instead of going back to her, I come to the church and I go to Pastor Tim Ryan and I say, oh, Tim, I have no more confidence in, in Ladon's love. I've just, my confidence in our marriage is just totally shaken. And can you imagine if Tim just patted me on the back and said, oh, don't worry, Chris, once married, always married. Can you imagine that? Does that help me at all? I can't get confidence from Tim Ryan about Ladon's love. I mean, I can't, he should slap me across the back of the head and send me home to repent. And he can give me tips for how to rebuild the confidence and how to rebuild the relationship. He can give me all that. But he can't give me confidence in Ladon's love. Only Ladon can give me that. So if I want confidence in the relationship, sure, I can take some hints from, from Tim. And I can go back and I can apply them in the marriage. But the only way for me to get confidence in the relationship is for me to go repent, get back in relationship, start building the intimacy and the trust again. Does that make sense? And it's the same with Jesus. You don't come to a pastor, sure, to get some tips about how to build the relationship. But I can't tell you you're saved. I don't have access to the book of life. I'm not the one in charge of who's in and who's not. I can help you connect to the one who is. But this is not a quick fix solution. This is a go into relationship with him. And over time, as you walk with the Holy Spirit, the fruit of listening to him and obeying him and having adventures with him and worshiping him and spending time with him is that the fruit of that kind of a life lived in the spirit is that the spirit bears witness in your spirit that you are a child of God. And over time, the more you walk with him, the more you have this rock-solid, unshakable assurance in your heart that I am his kid. Closeness breeds confidence. Now, there's a second thing, too. That's the most important thing, though. Closeness breeds confidence. Okay? But then there's a second thing, and that is you can talk to God about anything. If you're worried about your, this, the, your salvation, if you're worried about your status with God, go talk to him about that. He's the Heavenly Father. Okay, you can ask God to give you assurance of salvation. He promises to give good, good gifts to anyone who asks. And, and those of you, and I totally understand, you know, I, I totally understand struggling with this. Those of you who have been here for a few years, I've told the story many times. Uh, when I was a kid, I'm not going to tell the whole thing again now, but the quick, the quick version is, when I was eight, nine years old, I, I, every night, I was so terrified of dying in my sleep or something, and then I would go to hell. I was terrified of going to hell. A lot of people hear this story, and they think, 
on your parents for telling you about hell. They think the problem, the reason I was scared is because, of, because I was thinking about hell. The problem is never the truth. Can I tell you that right now? The problem was not the truth. I'm glad I knew the truth. You know what? That fear was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I'll tell you what it did. It drove me into Jesus. Fear is not a bad thing if it drives us into Jesus. But we just live in this culture that if you feel fear for even a second, whoa, get rid of that. No, maybe that fear is a signal. You need something else. And so I went to Jesus about it. I couldn't get assurance from anyone else. My dad finally just told me, just start reading your Bible, asking Jesus. I went a couple of months, every single day. I never missed. I was so scared of going to hell. And I would read my Bible every day. I would pray, give me assurance. And I didn't get it right away. Jesus was testing me to see, how much do you really want to push into me? I went a couple of months. And then one day, 1 Kings 8.29, I have it underlined and circled in every single Bible I ever get. 1 Kings 8.29, my name shall be there, God said to Solomon about the temple. And in that moment when I read that verse, I knew it was for me. The Holy Spirit flooded me. I'm just eight or nine years old. I'm weeping. And I had a powerful encounter with God that changed my life. That encounter was so powerful. Years later when I went to university and lots of other people were questioning the existence of God, I never questioned the existence of God because I could go back to this powerful encounter I had with him when I was a kid and I knew he was real. So the fear drove me back to him where I got assurance. Assurance comes from the Holy Spirit, not somebody else. And so you can ask God, and I could share with you other testimonies, people over the years who've come to me, and they really struggle with assurance of salvation, and, and always they want me to tell them something to make them feel better, and I never do. I always tell them, you have to go to Jesus. And they go away, and sometimes weeks later, sometimes months later, but they come back, and God has touched them as they pursued him, God touched them, and now their assurance is from him, and you can't shake that. Hugely, hugely important. Closeness breeds confidence, and you can ask. Well, so you can have assurance of salvation, but at the same time, we need to also keep in mind the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the thing that keeps us off this pathway of living a life where we would ever even want to go close to living a life where we could harden ourselves and separate ourselves from him. And that's what we see Sardis getting to this scary place. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but actually you're dead. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. There's two levels. We need to let this verse impact us as individuals and as a church body as a whole. As individuals and as a church body as a whole. Because you want to know one of the places where it's easiest to have a reputation for being alive but actually be dead on the inside, and that is in a church where God's doing lots of stuff. Because you want to know what happens as human beings? You know what happens? Is you get so pumped up hearing the testimonies of everybody else. You get so pumped up, because every week we have amazing testimonies. It's so awesome. People's lives being changed, and we should be, we should be thankful, and they, those things should, should, should you know, bring us to a place of praise and worship for God. But what can happen if we're not vigilant is the testimonies of what's happening in other people's lives get you so pumped up that they mask on the inside that you don't have any recent testimony with God yourself. You get pumped up on talking all the lingo. You're talking all the lingo about hearing God and getting set free and the Holy Spirit and, you get, and get being urgent for Jesus' return. You get so pumped up on the lingo that the lingo and the language you're using and what you're talking about masks the fact that you're not actually experiencing it anymore in your own life. 
You're riding on the coattails of what God did in your life five years ago. You're riding on the coattails of what he's doing on all your friends around you. And you talk about God all the time, but you never actually talk to God that much. And you coast from week to week. You come to a Sunday service. Oh, it's so awesome. You get, you, you, the worship is awesome. You see a testimony, message, you get some teaching. And at the end of it, you're like, oh, I feel so close to God. And then you just skip over to the next week and you get that same feeling again. But in between, you don't actually meet with Jesus yourself. You have a reputation for being alive. Maybe you're not anywhere close to being dead yet. These, these people, that's serious. You might just be at stale, but stale is one step towards way down a path. You're moving in a direction of dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So here's the thing. Your walk with the Lord always needs to be fresh and personal. You and I, we need to be vigilant. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. We need to be vigilant that we are never that person. We need to be vigilant that our walk with the Lord is fresh and personal. Fresh in the sense of, again, it's so easy to ride on the coattails of what God did for me a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. We tell, our, we tell the things of what God did for me at the encounter three years ago and how he rescued my marriage five years ago. And we share these stories. And then, but then if someone asks, so what's God done in your life the last few months? And it's like, oh, like because we're still riding the coattails of the past. It's not that God has to do massive deliverances in your life every month of your life, but, but he's always working. We're never perfect. We always need more. And so if we ever get to a place where it's just stale, where the only things we can talk about are things God did months ago and years ago. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You're coasting on what he's done for others. You're coasting on what he's done in the past. What we need is fresh and personal, a continually renewed walk where I'm meeting with Jesus and he is touching my life and I'm listening to him and things are changing and I'm following him. Your relationship with the Lord is fresh and personal. You're not just living from service to service to event to service. You have a walk with Jesus in between the services yourself. Hugely important. On a corporate level, as a church body, as a whole here at Southland, we need to be vigilant as well. On an, indi- an individual level, we need to be sure. But then on a corporate level as well. You know, I read, um, I read this thing this, this guy once talked about. He talked about the natural evolution of what happens in, with, with us as people, as human beings, when God starts a movement. And, uh, and he, he explained it this way, and I just love the way he explained it. He says, God starts a movement. What happens over time, if people aren't vigilant, is over time, naturally, as just the outworking of how we human beings work and think, is the movement becomes an organization. And that, that part isn't all bad, because often you have, you have to organize stuff to keep it going. Something's not all bad. But what can happen if you're not vigilant after that is, is the organization becomes an institution where it's all about the present, it's just maintaining what we already have, and eventually you can just become a museum where it's all about the past. But the movement can become an organization, can become an institution, can become a, a museum, and, and, and it's a sad thing, but it's, it's, it's subtle. See, in the movement stage, in the movement stage, God's doing this fresh work, people's lives are being changed, and the, the focus of the organization, the movement stage is up and out. It's up and out. What is Jesus saying? What's he doing? What's he calling us to? There's lots of change in a movement because you're following Jesus and he's moving. So it's not static. You're not just, here we are and this is who we are. 
When you're, in the, when you're a movement, you're following Jesus. What are you saying to us this year, Jesus? What are you calling us to this year? There's change. There's risk. There's lots of prayer and fasting. Because it's like you're praying to Jesus and he calls you to do something. He never calls you to do stuff that's, that's comfortable, or at least not often. And then you've got to pray and fast. Oh, Jesus, you told us to do this. Now we're doing it. Now we need your help. That's the movement stage. Okay? I think of the last few years uh, here at South and even some things God has done here. And we're just so blessed. But... Uh, crazy stuff. I mean, some of it Pastor Ray was talking about here today, um, but you, I mean, you look at school of ministers, and I remember being at the, the table when we were discussing and praying about that and how scared we were, like, what on earth? What if nobody signs up? What are we going to do? How are we going to pay for this? Who's going to do this? And we were all up to here with work already. Who's going to look after this thing? And, and then you think of summer camp and church renewal and Tupendani and four winds and the housing thing and retreats and stuff, and you just look at all these things and so much risk and sacrifice and the body just giving, but listening. How many prayer summits have we been down on our knees? Oh, Jesus, you've got to help us with this. It's taking tons of sacrifice, tons of listening, tons of following, tons of faith, okay? But what happens in the institution stage is, in a movement stage, you're here in the institution stage, this subtle shift comes from up and out. Jesus, what are you saying to us this year? Where are you leading us? Where are you guiding us? What do you want us to do? The shift goes inward in an institution, and now it's not looking, Jesus, what new things you want us to do? It's just about maintaining the programs we already have. And now we're just keeping the thing going. That's all we want to do. We just want to maintain where we're at. We just want to keep things healthy. We just want to pay for the, the stuff we've got. And it becomes subtly inward focus. And now the focus is shifted from hearing Jesus. What are you saying? Where are you leading us? Now the focus is, let's just make this religious thing happen. You're living off the past. Jesus called us to do that in the past. We'll keep doing it in the present. And the dangerous thing is, nobody ever gets up on stage and says, as of today, we cease to be a movement. We're becoming an institution. Nobody ever does that. You don't change the signs out front. You don't change the bulletins. You don't make a banner on the, on the website. It's a subtle change that happens over time. And what happens is people, it's not that people are trying to be evil. People aren't trying to be bad. It's because as human beings, we naturally tend towards safety and control. Isn't that true? We don't, we like familiar. We don't like change. We don't like risk. We like safety. We like familiarity. And so we just tend over time, okay, Jesus, we lived the faith thing for a while back there. It's just too stressful. And we just, over time, you choose safety and familiarity over listening and obedience. And over time, the, subtly the shift goes from up and out, Jesus, what are you saying? Where are you leading us? And the shift becomes, let's just keep this thing going. And it doesn't take much faith in an institution because in an institution, you're not listening. So you're just, you're just, well, let's just make a budget. What's your plan for the next three years? Well, we just look at the budget. What can we do? Type it in. You don't even need to pray about that because we've got the budget for it, right? In a movement, you have to have faith because you're following someone who's real. See, in all of us, it's not Pastor Ray. It's not like, well, Pastor Ray has to keep us from becoming an institution. Well, I mean, obviously, as, as the leader here, I mean, he leads us. As, I mean, it's like a movement. I mean, there's always stuff, right? He's hearing God. But each one of us here in this family it's our choices that determine who we're going to be. And every time we choose, every time we choose with the way we speak and the way we live, every time we choose to put prayer and listening down here and institution, safety and familiarity up here, not that safety and familiarity are bad things in and of themselves, but when we elevate those things above listening and faith and walking with Jesus, every little choice we make as people in this body is a subtle pull in the organization 
Are we pulling it to, towards Jesus as a movement with our talk to each other, with our relationship with Jesus ourselves, or are we making many choices that are pulling it to be an institution? What are we going to be? An institution or a movement? Well, Jesus says, verse 2, wake up, he says to the church of Sardis. I love the hope of that. I love the hope. It's never too late. Even for Sardis, they're dead. Some of them are in danger of being blotted out of the book of life entirely. But there's still hope. If there was no hope, he wouldn't be talking to them. He says, wake up. There's actually practical things. And again, he's alluding back to the history of the city, which this city has been conquered twice in history because of being asleep at the wheel. He says, be vigilant. You're, you're prosperous. Things are easy. you got the nice buildings. You have the nice programs. It'd be easy to just go to sleep and not wake up. But you can be vigilant. Stir yourself up. Wake up. Examine your heart. Are you walking by faith or are you just walking by religion? Just doing a thing and keeping it going. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You're still operating off of last year's works. You're not doing this year's works. I've given you things to do. I want to give you more things to do. I want to call you to higher things. You're going to know me more. But it's going to be an adventure. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. It's all about hearing. Jesus is speaking. Remember then what you received and heard. He's speaking to us as individuals. He's speaking to us as a body. Sometimes our hearts get hard and, and we don't even hear that he's speaking. But if we will stop and we will examine, we'll see that he has been speaking in our individual lives and in our families and in our church. And if we will take time to stop and listen, remember then what you received and heard. And go back and do the things he's calling us to do. Keep it and repent. But if you will not wake up, the next verse here, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is the kindness and the severity of Jesus. This is the kindness and severity of Jesus. On the one hand, if you want to disown him, he will disown you. On the other hand, even when you're faithless, he remains faithful. If you will repent, if you will repent, if you will wake up, he embraces if you will not repent, he says, I will come against you. Jesus is not against shutting churches down. He's not, he's not against just, you know, uh, uh, bringing calamity. He's not against bringing trial into our lives, all these sorts of things. If you will not repent, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse 4, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I love that. Even in a bad church, even in a pathetic church, you can sometimes still have these saints and their hearts are broken over the deadness and they pray. They're not in every church, but some pathetic churches and some bad churches even, they've got a remnant there who pray. And Jesus says, I'm not judging you with the rest of them. I still know who's who. But the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Last verse here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, there we are again. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's all about listening and following. It's all about listening and following. That's what this letter is all about. That's what this challenge is all about. Don't coast on programs. Don't coast on the past. Don't coast on everyone around you. He who has an ear, let him hear. 
We need to press into Jesus ourselves. Out of that comes this tremendous body life, where as a body, we live by faith. Sometimes it's scary. But in a movement, prayer is like the most important thing because you need Jesus all the time. In an institution, prayer is just another program. We've got prayer. We've got, you know, this and that and that and that. And here's prayer. So a few people come to prayer and a few people go to that and a few people go to that. In a movement, everything is prayer. Everybody prays because we need God to pull off anything we want him to do. He who has an ear, let him hear. Who's listening, Jesus says. So here's what I want to do. Worship team is going to come out here in just a moment. We're going to sing a final song. And before they do that, I want to pray for you a couple of things. Assurance of salvation, different things. Before we even do that, those of you who want, anybody who has a pen or paper, some of you already have one out, just good. Maybe it's on your phone. You know, don't judge people who don't pull out a pen and paper. Some people are writing on their phones, okay? Um, and some of you, you don't want to write anything down. That's no problem. I'm not even mad at you. That's, that's fine, okay? But any of you who wants to hear something from God, what I want to do is I'm gonna, we're going to take a moment. We're just going to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear. I've just talked to you for 45 minutes here out of the Bible, and you can feel really good about that teaching and just go, go oh, that was a neat message, and I learned some neat things about Sardis. And that is not at all the main reason what we're supposed to take out of here. Not some neat things about Sardis. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Jesus wants to say something to you out of this message. And so before I even pray for you and we go to the worship, I'm going to just take a moment. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. I'm going to ask him, what is one thing that Jesus wants you to take out of this message? What's one thing? What's your one takeaway? Jesus is saying, this is for you. This is the thing I want you to remember. It might be about the assurance of salvation. It might be something he wants you to do, whatever, to wake up and repent or whatever it is. What is one thing the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you out of this message? One takeaway you'll take. I'm going to pray and we're just going to be silent for a minute. So let, let God speak. You can write down whatever he shows you. Holy Spirit, I thank you that whoever has ears here this morning can hear. I want to thank you for speaking to us about assurance of salvation. I want to thank you for speaking to us about being alive but being stale or dead on the inside. Holy Spirit, I know that every person here, you have something for them from this message, a takeaway that you want them to take, something you want to say to them. For them, for their family, for this church, whatever it is, Jesus, I pray that you would speak to each of us at this time. If you're still writing, that's, that's cool. You can just 
finish writing that down even while the song goes. But the rest of you, I'm just going to have you stand up. We're going to sing right away anyway. I want to pray two things for you. Some of you are here today and you just, you struggle with assurance of salvation. And uh, I'm going to pray for you on that. Some of you are here today and you're just stale. You're just stale. As I spoke to you today, as you're sitting here listening just now, there's just, it's just not that spark isn't there. You're dry. You just feel so dry. And this is from the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to pray that he touches you. Because he wants us to be alive, really alive. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. He wants us to be alive. So I'm going to pray for you. If you want, you can put your hands out if that helps you at all. If not, it doesn't matter. Lord Jesus, we come to you today. And I know that some of your kids here today struggle with worry. They're not confident in their relationship with you. Lord Jesus, I just, your Holy Spirit, you promise that your Holy Spirit will bear witness in our spirits that we are your children. And some people here today need that touch. I just pray, God, that this week as we begin to seek you, Jesus, that your, your spirit will draw us into you closer and closer. And as we're drawn into you, Lord, I pray that we would have this fruit here in this church, this new confidence would rise up. Not a confidence that comes from something somebody else told us, but a confidence that comes from you, that each one of us here can walk in absolute, rock-solid, joyful assurance that we are yours. Some, some have been praying already about that recently. Jesus, I pray that this that this week, this month, you would begin to answer in awesome ways to give assurance of salvation. Lord Jesus, many of us here today, many of your kids, we're just thirsty. Our spirits are dry. We're stale. We don't want to go down the path to dead. We're at stale. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would touch us. Even as we begin to worship now, as we turn our eyes on you, this week as we begin to listen to you, I pray that your Holy Spirit, I, I think of that verse you gave me this week, Jesus, that with joy, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. Pray that you would bring the joy back, the, the closeness, the intimacy, the softness. In your name we pray, amen.